Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, I'm Joel Morris. I'm a comedy writer and I have worked for everyone from Charlie Brooker to Mitchell and Webb to uh, Viz Magazine, wrote on the Paddington films, co-created the Ladywell Books for Grown Ups and the Frowning Examiner, loads of stuff like that, which I've been doing for decades. Um, and I love pulling comedy apart. Um, anyone who's listened to the podcasts I've made, uh, Comfort Blanket or Rule of Three, will know I like analysing, micro-analysing how jokes and stories and comedy ideas work. Um, they say that if you dissect comedy, it's like dissecting a frog. No one laughs and the frog dies. But without dissected frogs, we wouldn't have anatomy or surgery or any of the knowledge about how bodies work. So I think you should kill as many frogs as possible. And the interest of murdering a maximum number of Kermits, I'm writing a book. And the book's called Comedy Basic. It's been published by Unbound. If you search on their website under Comedy Basic by Joel Morris, it's on there. Um, buy a copy and I will write it. That's the deal. That's how Unbound works. If you go to their website, it's unbound.com forward slash books forward slash comedy hyphen basic. Or just search for Unbound and Comedy Basic by Joel Morris. Buy a copy, uh, have a signed one, have some toys, have some free gifts. But um, the book should be great. It should be really funny. And it'll be a mixture of experience from having done it for a long time. And also some anthropology and some neuroscience that will explain how you can make jokes, how you can make better jokes, how you can have jokes not fail, and what's happening to our brains when we hear comedy, because we are uniquely the only animals that make comedy. Other animals laugh, we're the only ones that make sitcoms. It's a book on that. If you find that interesting, if you've enjoyed any of the podcasts or any of the comedy, you might like it. So look it up and pledge for a copy. It's called Comedy Basic by Joel Morris, published by Unbound. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the writer Jenny Colgan. Jenny is an incredibly prolific writer and has written loads of romantic comedy novels and science fiction novels and a lot of stuff for Doctor Who, for Big Finish and for uh, the Doctor Who novel series. She has chosen as her comfort blanket the film Terminator. Very important that you live. This isn't true. 
How could that man just get up after you did it's not a man. Machine. Terminator. Cyberdyne Systems Model 101. Right, so you've chosen as your comfort the first film in the Terminator franchise. Yeah, I mean, I will take pretty much any James Cameron on offer if right. I need it, apart from Avatar, which is the most rubbish film. <laughs> isn't, the mo- isn't the most successful rubbish film ever made? <laughs> I think it's famously the least influential successful film ever made. It's got most, no cultural footprint, has it? It has none, and, and most people can't really remember it. And it's really <laughs> interesting from that point of view in, in terms of how bizarrely unsuccessful a successful film it was whereas Terminator influenced everything that came after it yeah. uh, Titanic weirdly was the first time we'd seen regular killings off of protagonists that became almost a footprint for everything that came after that plus disastrously a, a kind of fashion for very long films <laughs> uh, however any old James Cameron and Terminator 1 in particular Sarah Connor yes <laughs> This is his first film, his first proper film. Didn't he do some work on Piranha 2, Flying Killers or something? There's his filmography goes back. Yes. But this is, as far as he's concerned, this is his first film. So he hits the ground running as a director and he comes up with something which is still one of the most iconic and quoted films of all time that people still love. It's an amazing thing to come out as your first movie to land at this speed. A machine? Like a robot? Not a robot. Cyborg. Cybernetic organism. No, he was bleeding. Just a second. I mean, at the time, I mean, it was literally reviewed in roundups of things like of drive-in movies, you know? It was a really B picture. Uh, but I think it's really the first time that it became very clear how he worked, which is every single frame of this is me. <laughs> <laughs> I've absolutely no interest in other people's creative input at all. You know, the, his stamp is on every single frame. If you read the original script, one, there's no dialogue in it at all. Everything in it, there's, and it's funny because he gets a reputation, you know, oh, that bloody Picasso, he won't amount to a thing. You know, he beca- he gets a reputation later on as being a bad screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, whereas in Terminator 1, there's about 16 lines of dialogue and most of them have become, have passed into the lexicon. Come with me if you want to live. It's the birth almost of that, not silent, I mean, silent cinema exists beforehand, but of the, the new form of cinema, which is incredibly internationally translatable. It's full of classic lines, but they're not witty lines. They're not lines that require a knowledge of English. They're not puns and wordplay. They are literally, I'll be back. Yes. It translates into another language completely seamlessly. That's true. But actually on the original first draft of the script, the visuals are there extremely clearly. You can right. read it and watch the film. Uh, but he says, I'll come back. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll come back. I don't quite know uh, when that got shifted, but I thought that was charming, like the most iconic of life. <laughs> yeah, I'll come right back. You get Try again, Arnie. Off. I was watching it last night and thinking again, that line, and you go, now now I'll be back is the line. That's yeah. the, the line we all know from Terminator. I was watching it going, as a writer, you wouldn't know I'll be back would work. You wouldn't write it down. And you wouldn't know. And the other thing is, James Cameron said, 
it shouldn't work. Because you almost have to see the movie to know that he's coming through the door with the car. I, I figured that that would be a line for people who were seeing the film again, which obviously Terminator is one of those movies that people see over and over, so it works like that. But weirdly, by that point, he said, Arnie is so clearly yes. going to do something yes, like that. It's going to be so awful. <laughs> Arnie has a weight in his eyes that says, in a minute, there will be chaos. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. I'm a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. And also just how well it's been built. I mean, up until that point, he said about four things. And about, you know... People's trousers. Sure. I want your trousers. That's the hey. line, isn't it? You're close. Give them to me. Now. Fuck you, asshole. However, Arnie is not why this is my comfort film. What is it that, that makes you feel safe with Terminator? Well, I mean, I'm a romantic novelist, really. or I'm a, I write romantic comedies. So that's my job. And I love romance and romantic films. And for my money, this is the most romantic film that has ever been made. Was there someone special? Someone? A girl, you know? No. Never. Never. The fact that there is a big killer robot in it is very much a kind of side issue <laughs> to me. It's not by any means what I find interesting in this film. I memorized every line, every curve. I think it's a perfect time loop film of people who know things that they can't reveal, people that have been in love with other people for a long time and people who will risk literally everything. I came across time for you, Sarah. I love you. I always have. From the second Kyle Reese appears, yeah. he knows that he can't get out of it. He's volunteered because of one photograph that he's had his whole life. And reasonably early on, although it's never, it's mentioned in the first draft of the script, she tells him that, she, you know, there will never be anyone else for me. And this baby has to be yours because that's how much I love you. Yeah. Uh, near the end in the smelting plant. But they took that bit out because obviously they could have it so that they could have it at the end. And that purity, it's a perfect... Do you know how long this film is, by the way? It is 102 minutes. It, 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 perfect. Yes. I mean, in other words, it's perfect. It seems that sometimes if you finish a film, as in choose the best bits, it's a better film. Oh, Mr. Seth. Anyway. But, right. <laughs> it is a perfect time-sealed love story. It's as good as an uh, example, as you'll see, with two exceptionally attractive people with nothing in common and yeah. everything to play for. And I love it. I'm Reese, Sergeant Techcom, BN38416, assigned to protect you. You've been targeted for termination. And I love T2 because it's a great film, it's hard not to, but it's, you know, it doesn't have the heart and the soul of T1. What's it like when you go through time? White light. Pain. It's like being born, maybe. There's something fascinating about the way this, this works, isn't it? When it opens up, you don't know who it's going to be about for about 20 minutes. Yeah. 
if you come to it having watched it a lot of times, you know, well, Arnie's the robot and Michael Bean's the hero and Linda Hamilton's the, the, the damsel in distress. That's your setup at the beginning. You're not told that. You don't see Linda Hamilton for about 12 minutes and she turns up and she's a waitress. Yeah. You've seen two guys. The two guys have appeared in the middle of LA out of steam and lightning. They look sort of the same. You can't tell. They both appear to be tooled up and trouble. They both appear to be going through phone books looking for her. It might be two robots are after. You don't know Arnie's a robot. You know nothing. And then as it unfolds, the story that you're saying is the core of it is revealed really slowly and only comes into focus in the last reel. The build towards I've come through time, I've been in love with you forever. It's a romance. Yeah, Yeah. that's not declared at the beginning. So what it's got is this aching, unsaid romance. It's an unarticulated romance. It's a film of very few words, efficient and machine-like. It is Arnie. The film is Arnie. It It doesn't waste words. It doesn't waste time. But what it's got is this incredibly soft, beating human heart. It's a romance. You're completely right. Tell me about my son. It's about my height. He has your eyes. Do you know, like a lot of writers, I cannot, I never read the blurbs on the back of books. I never read previews. I never watch trailers, if I can possibly help it, for things that I'm going in. I want to go in blind and I will go to huge lengths not to guess the end or try and think yeah. ahead. And that's why this kind of fashion for it's got a terrifying twist you won't see coming yeah. to me is bullshit of the most <laughs> intense order. One, because they're all crap, because it's really hard to write a good twist. There's only two. And then the second thing is there's a kind of movement that's like, oh, you should be able to deal with spoilers. Yeah. You, you know, the pro spoiler movement. Yeah, yeah. And I just like, I have no interest in that either. You know, the joy and the fun and excitement. Yeah of storytelling is surprise. And the first time I saw this film, I was, and then the robot's such a good distraction. Yeah. And all the blowing up. And it also it moves at like the speed of light. It's unbelievably well edited. That they, it is, really, really is. That the emotional punch when it comes was overwhelming to me. I was like, oh my God, that's the bit. You know, I was it's genuinely very, like, very I was rare. nine years old watching It's very it. rare in a film that's got this sort of muscular, masculine action thing to have its soft beats be this good because normally uh in those things there's always sort of i, I want to get my daughter back step away from the bunny mm, kind of thing yeah. where, but they're kind of bolted on as a motive for the for the mayhem it's surprising in terms of when it has its quiet beats they are melancholy and they're clever and they're intelligent they're the bits where people talk and actually they're that aching romance in there feels very authentic it doesn't feel like it's you don't have that feeling of going, oh, my God, they've stopped shooting each other. I'm bored now. I'll look away. I'll look at my phone. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, you're waiting for those bits because they will then tell you why all this is happening. Don't suppose you know who the father is, so I won't tell him to get lost when I meet him. So you're kind of looking for clues. You're looking for information. You're As an audience, you're, you're hungry. When it goes quiet, you go, well, when they talk, he'll tell her about the future. And its exposition dumps are done really elegantly. There's a moment of pause, a moment of quiet, and then there's only it's a three-hander. Quite simple. It's amazing how quickly it dispatches anyone else you think is going to be an additional character. <laughs> what about when he punched through the windshield? He was probably on PCP. <laughs> Lance police Henriksen guy. and people, the police guys. You go, oh, these police guys will be yeah. here for the. They're dead! Yeah. Yeah. It, it says there are three people in this, and for the first 12 minutes, there are two people in it. Third person arrives. You don't know who you're following. And when you do start to follow them, you go, I'll follow these three. Look at the flat. Better than mortal man deserves. We get yeah. quite a lot of the flat, mate. Oh, she did that. As soon as it starts, everyone else is expendable. It's got a really good, clever use of red shirts. You don't quite know who the red shirt guys are going to be who are are expendable. And it turns out to be everyone except this this core three. That Terminator is out there. 
It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. It doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear. And it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. It drops the three characters in and you're trying to watch which one am I watching most. And really quickly you go, oh my God, it's the bad guy. The bad guy who doesn't say anything. And so the first time you watch it through, probably you're watching this amazing new invention. This He's a cool robot. They haven't done robots. It's a cyborg. This is the closest to this before would probably be Westworld, to which it owes a shitload. MGM presents Westworld. Which is Yul Brynner's impassive, black-clad gunfighter. Your move. Who does the half-face robot stuff. It borrows from that, but even then, he's not like Arnie. There is something about Arnie in this, and that character, the minimal way it's written, and the way he's chosen to move physically. That means I'm fascinated by him. Anything else? Phased plasma rifle in a 40-watt range. Hey, just what you see, pal. And then as you get further in, you suddenly notice that the other two guys are brilliant, and you're actually watching them. I don't know how it does it. It's a really good bit of writing, I think. I think I, I genuinely think he's underestimated, because another thing I watch when I need... That kind of thing. I think The Abyss is a very underrated movie. Whatever whatever version of yeah. it you might choose to watch. Is it finished yet? <laughs> they decide <laughs> what bits are in it, it yet. Yeah. But, the, um, but the, the love story at the heart of that is extremely affecting as well. You know, it will get you in the end. I think T1 is about the impossibility of choosing who to fall in love with. I think that's what wow. I think. <laughs> I think, you know, you can't choose that he was set. And they keep saying all the time, well, there's no fate except the one we make for ourselves. Are you saying it's from the future? One possible future. That's the that, line, isn't it? That's the line, but that's not what happened. There's never a way out for Reese. Never. He's always going to die. This is set in stone. You know, humans are doomed. And as we know, humans are doomed. But we're going to fall in love anyway. So I, th- I think, the, yeah. I think the, the child becomes everything and then it becomes about a special boy child in T2. And I, I was quite prickly about T2 because when I saw T1, not a lot of people had seen it. I'd, I saw it on VHS and I, it was one of those kind of precious, special. And also, remember, I'm pre-internet girl mm. sci-fi lover. So that was, you know, quite a very niche minority thing yeah. back then and so when T2 came out and oh, everybody loves it now I was really I literally it was real foldy army in the yeah, cinema yeah. despite the fact that it was patently a wonderful film yeah. it wasn't you know it was special boy will grow up to save the world and you know what I've seen a lot of special boy girls watch to save yeah, the world yeah. films and that's fine whereas T1 was just the purest of love stories maybe it'll help if you know that in a few hours that we had together we loved a lifetime's worth romances are fantasies that's what literally a romance is i think i might be wrong about this but when science fiction first came out as a genre it was called science romance or it's the other it's a romance like a like a arthur and the knights of the round table is a romance it's a an adventure in a world of fantasy yeah call a man just means story just means yeah. novel there are romance in the sense of a flight of fancy this is a thing that can't possibly happen and we'll pretend it can happen and then within that you end up telling a romance story i always felt that this this was more 
than the ordinary action film. Right. And it was more than uh, a special effects film. And, uh, or like what some thought was just a, a B movie. Mm -hmm. This is not to be looked at as just a limited audience. But in fact, I think the story is so solid and so good and mm -hmm. has so many interesting mm -hmm. messages there. And right. it is also entertaining. And so that it would have a broad appeal. Right. That it would have an appeal uh, to, towards the world for the women. It would have something for the right. older folks. It was, uh, it was just something that had something in there for everyone. The first aid scene, when she first patches him up, and she's before then, she's, I was watching this to go, is she useless? I mean, am I tough? Organized? I can't even balance my checkbook. And she's sort of necessarily useless at the beginning. She's in shock. She doesn't really do very much. And then she does a field dressing. It's a good field dressing. You like it? It's my first. And you go, oh, she's going to be a soldier. It's such a romantic trope that it has its own name in fanfic it's called Hurt Comfort oh and you see it repeated time and time again whether it's Spock and Kirk and whatever but once you start looking for it the characters with romantic potential it seems to always be stitching for some reason it's always in the upper body so that the man usually has to take his top off and the woman has to tenderly or the other man has to tenderly stitch them up and care for them now I've said it what Hurt Comfort is you'll see yeah. it or somebody passing out and having to be lifted up is again that's the same issue but hurt comfort is a very very common romance trope and you often see it. people get closer if one person gets hurt and the other person has right. to help them cold freezing usually and this is going to sound ridiculous but in straight romance it tends to be the man who gets hurt and the woman who helps them oh my god i caught one back there you mean you got shot that's not bad which puts them into a kind of Weak becomes strong, strong becomes weak. Aha, you know, and they're yeah. naked and they're close together. So they, they do, he does that. It's, it's, it's an intimate act, whatever happens. It looks. I, James Cameron's ability of, of, you know, the kind of subtext is for cowards. <laughs> <laughs> School of writing, which I adore. I know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. Um, so he does that. The other thing he does is when he does the exposition. Yeah. You may remember they are hiding in the car I think yes. when he explains so they have to of necessity they're caught in a very tight space which we often do in romance they're often trapped somewhere caught somewhere uh, they have to speak very quietly and he has to physically out of sight is a great example they get locked in a car boot yeah. uh, they have to physically get very close and intimate but there was one man who taught us to fight to storm the wire of the camps, to smash those metal motherfuckers into junk. They're in bed, effectively, in the car. They're, yes, they're that's down. Right, yeah. They're lying down. And and so what we're what we're seeing is something we see a lot, which is close and whispering. Doesn't matter what you're whispering in romance; that you just have to be whispering. But then he also manages to use it to very cleverly do his info dump time yeah, yeah. exposition. So it's the that's economy, amazing. the sweetness of the economy of him writing a very standard romance, but also ticking off all the other stuff he needs to tick off is terrifically clever. It's clever. It's really clever. The love story in this is that she starts out unremarkable. She's a waitress. She's hassled. She's got a flatmate. It's very ordinary. There's a mundanity to it that reminded me weirdly of um, the delight there is in, in Doctor Who with the, the, the mundanity yeah, of Rose. Yeah, that's right. Let me take you away from all this. This reminded me of, of 1970s Pertwee Doctor Who. <laughs> that you, what you do is you drop incredible things into mundane settings. Show for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. And what you find out is A, that's brilliant, mm -hmm. and B, a lot cheaper. 
Yeah. Because every time they cut away to the future world in this, it's good, but it's nowhere near as compelling as watching these crazy people have their sci-fi antics in normal everyday life. Let me tell you a quick funny thing, which is when I was writing for the Doctor Who spin-off for Big Finish, and they do them three at a time. And the reason they do them three at a time is that there are three Doctor Who stories. There's historicals, there's contemporary set, usually in Britain, and then there's future spacey world yeah, yeah. type stuff. And they tended to go in order of seniority in terms of how long you've been writing for them, whatever. And the order they go in is contemporary Earth, historical, future spacey world. Isn't that funny? You're only trusted with future spacey world if you've been doing it for a while. No, the reverse. <gasps> oh. when, you get, when people get to choose what they want to do, they all want a weird space thing falling into contemporary world. Because it's the best story. Because it's the best story. You go on. Go on. Go and have your lovely beans on toast. Don't tell anyone about this, because if you do, you'll get them killed. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. And also, it's a lot less work than... Because I've wrote loads of made-up spacey worlds. It's really difficult. We make a return to something which Andrew Mayer was talking about, which is despite the reputation for sci-fi... Uh, fandom for loving world building that world building is the oh, worst it's bit that's why it's, it's going to so go similar wrong all it's the time go wrong. and the only world you can build is the one that's in your head based on where you actually live you can't imagine that's why so many world. films world building looks like blade runner and it's yeah. so endlessly boring because somebody did all that bollock stuff yeah for yeah you. It's, it's really hard really hard and tiresome especially if you're doing it for audio how many naimons have you seen today don't dare blaspheme the naimon how many Skonos, how many naimons <laughs> so you've got a woman who is a normal everyday person classic doctor who assistant style thing and an amazing thing drops into her world and it's impossible robots and she starts out saying that she's not up to the job this is a mistake i didn't do anything and you know as a as a as a viewer that she's not up to the job and then what you watch her do is become the woman that he knows she is, That's which right. is why he fell in love with her. That's the time loop. And it's about someone meeting you and saying, I can see your potential, which is incredibly romantic. Yeah, and this is your destiny. And by the way, I know it's your destiny because I've been there. Yes. Most of us were rounded up, put in camps for orderly disposal. Spurned by laser scanner. And also, in very strict rom-com terms, we see her early on having bad dates, yeah. getting dressed up for dates that don't happen. Hi, Sarah. Dan Morsky. Uh, something's come up and it looks like I won't be able to make it tonight. Getting chatted up by horrible guys in the diner. I think that's mine, but I didn't order fries. To be. These are all very standard, to-the-test rom-com tropes. Low-status job. Look at this way. In a hundred years, who's going to care? Yeah. Great best friend. So what if he has a Porsche? He can't treat you like this. It's Friday night, for Christ's sake. You know, this is absolutely yes. how you put a rom-com together. So they follow every single beat of it. Even her name is literally Sarah is just a massive <laughs> rom-com name, as is Kyle, as is Reese. Yeah. Those kind of non-specific, quite generic, hey, this could be you, names uh, of which we have a very long list. There's very few Aramintas in romantic comedy, for example, unless they're the bitchy best friend. Sarah Khanna. Yeah. Her best friend is Ginger, the spicy best friend. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it is completely the shape of a rom-com, except instead of the bad ex or the mean boss, it, it's a killer robot guy thing. You still don't get it, do you? He'll find her. That's what he does. That's all he does. Sometimes your villain has complete will and affects the story in that way. And sometimes the villain is just an oncoming truck. And it's just pressure. 
And what this is, this is a great film where the villain is just an oncoming truck. The amount of truck imagery that's in it, it is dual being done again, but with a robot. A big machine is coming and the machine is going to get her. And the race you're watching is, can she find true love before time runs out? Yes, before here's the your stake. It's, yeah. it's the perils of Pauline. There is a chainsaw coming towards her from the beginning to the end. And it's got that wonderful feeling of, well, that's just time. That's saying, can you find the right person before time runs out, before it's too late, before you make a mistake, before you marry the wrong guy? Yep. The pressure here is the same as that. You can't stop him. He'll wait for you, reach down her throat and pull her fucking heart out. It plays with that dreamlike nightmare pacing, a thing in your dream that comes, that advances from the horizon, the it follows dream. Something is coming closer and closer and closer, well, yeah, that's marching it. and he can't be stopped. Yes, but that's it in the scary robot way. In the romance way, for example, I write quite a lot of novels set at Christmas time. Yeah. And in those novels, Christmas is the oncoming crook. Christmas is a big deal for my family. And every year I'm this problem they all have to solve because I'm always the single one. Because yes. you have to get everything sorted out and everything needs to be <laughs> fine by the 25th of December. And that's your ticking clock. Theirs is like the nuclear war of 1997. Um, but it's, it's, it's Are we the saying same. that Ar- Arnie is the prom? Yes. I can't go to my own prom without a date. I can't. It's too late. That's he's exactly what it is. Or the wedding date. Is there that what his theme music is? Prom, 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 prom. <laughs> prom, 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 prom. It's, he's coming. There, there there's a, yeah. It can't be reasoned with. It can't be bargained with. It's literally wedding caterers. <laughs> now, so you have not made up your list yet, but you know that you want the wedding at home on January 6th, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Excuse me? What you're watching when you're watching a film very often isn't the film you think you're watching, which is why it delights you. And I think maybe that's where we said that there's an organic feel to the quiet scenes, the peaceful scenes, the what, what in a James Bond film are the kissy scenes actually have some weight in this because actually you're not watching an action movie, you're watching something yeah, which is simultaneously a rom-com. There is no way you can possibly watch a James Bond film for the romance, possibly Casino Royale if you're really yeah. pushing yourself. Yeah, I like James Bond, but it's not in the same class. I mean, you know, there is a reason why the vast majority of people's favourite doctor is David Tennant. Mm. And it's not because of, you know, the farty monsters or whatever. It's because it had a huge, compelling and realistic romance that yeah. they have tried to emulate over and over again with Clara and with Amy and all sorts of stuff. And they've never managed it because the Doctor and Rose was completely organic and completely believable and they worked very, very hard on it. They didn't just assume it would happen. I'll grow old and never regenerate. I've only got one life. Rose Tyler. with you if you want they built it and they worked on it and that is why david tennant is the most successful doctor by a country mile yeah he's the most successful and beloved doctor i was watching it and i was thinking is the anchoredness and the popularity of this and the fact this went massive and became a huge cultural thing outside sort of sci-fi nerddom i thought is it because it's really solid and because it's set now. And so there's no barrier to access. It's not full of flying cars and, and spaceships and aliens and people with blue hair. The contemporary setting gives you an ability to watch it and just go, well, it's just a great car chase. It's a cop show. There's, there are policemen in it. The machine guns go, bada, 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 bada. It's got commandonus to it. Uzi 9mm. Um, but what you're saying is that the, 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 the relatability of it is not to do with it looking like now and here, but because the soul of it is relatable. It's about a thing we can all relate to. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Blade Runner doesn't look like here. Well, it now looks like all future versions <laughs> of yes. here, but back then it looked pretty special. Um, but And people love that in a deep emotional way because of the characters, the love story between the central characters, but also the, the replicant characters because of the deep emotional story. It's told it has flying cars, it has <laughs> blue hair, um, you know, or, or 12 Monkeys, for example, yeah. which is, you know, whereas something like Lord of the Rings, which I find completely soulless, I can't yeah. buy into it any of them falling in love and getting married so no i don't think i i think it is cool that it's set in the present day but i don't think that's what make people love it they love it because it has a emotional hardcore that you can relate to that's why i love it hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the lovely ways about the way it's told is it does feel dreamlike. It feels like a nightmare. It feels like the kind of thing you'd wake up and it's the, it's the worst day of your life is to find out that you've been randomly picked to be pursued by Arnold Schwarzenegger as a huge robot covered in guns. Look, Reese, I didn't ask for this honour and I don't want it! Any of it! It's got a nightmarish slowness to it. And I was watching it last night and appreciating that before any of the action, it very often goes into slow motion like you're in a car accident or a dream and suddenly you can see the inevitability of it. There's that great scene in the bar where Michael Bean's drawing his gun, Arnie's drawing his gun, the coats are open, you're not quite sure who they are at that point, and Arnie's laser sight just hits Linda Hamilton. And she sits there and you go, you'd run away. But there's a feeling of going, oh, like rabbit in headlights, like in a dream, your sleep paralysis, she can't move. And you watch it play out and then the moment, it's like he's pulling an elastic band back. And the moment the action starts and the first gunshot goes off, it's edited so you can barely see a thing. It's bang, 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 bang. And it's got this relentless rhythm of slow... And it's so fast you can't follow it. And I just watched it going, this is ballet. It is beautifully paced. It's absolutely beautiful. And he has said, you know, we didn't have any money for special effects, so we had to do what we could do, which means we did a lot of Arnie's face you know they dripped water in his eyes so that there's water crossing his eyes but he doesn't blink Wow! Uh, all the time his pupils move before his face moves because that's what a robot would do there's that glowy scene in the cop car where they're driving through the the car park (gasps) and his eyes move james cameron said that was arnie's idea to move like a surveillance camera what movement would there be going on and it would literally only be the arm coming across pulling out 
cocking, shooting. Right. No shoulder movement, no head movement. Right. It goes back, and then the whole body would turn exactly. and walk away. But so with a smoothness, the too. Oh, yeah, it was totally. Like, yeah. It was like very positive and very smooth. Right. Not jerky, either, because jerkiness wastes waste energy. There's a real thing that Arnie's on a battery. That he's yes. worried his battery's going to run yeah. down, so he does the minimal amount of but, acting and moving and everything. The bizarre joke that Arnold Schwarzenegger cannot act is just absolutely, it's nonsensical. He is superbly convincing in this yeah. film. And actually, it's kind of lucky, really, that it was James Cameron and he's so brilliant. Because, of course, with the next one, it was the biggest budget film ever and it could have been rubbish. Yeah. And actually, he reinvented special effects, I think, massively to the detriment of cinema making because yeah. we've had to endure terrible CGI. And right as we're talking now, I think the huge success of the new Top Gun. Mm. My kids love the original Top Gun because they could tell those were real planes, you yeah. know? And... So actually, I, I get the same. I, I know I keep dumping on T two, but the huge success of T two and how clever it was, yeah. and how clever he used the special effects, ruined a bunch of much much lesser films. But in T yeah. one, apart from stuff blowing up, and it's actually blowing up. Yeah, there's they work with what they have, but what they had was Arnold. Hey, buddy, got a dead cat in there or what? Fuck you, asshole. The effects they add to Arnold are absolutely brilliant as well. Every one of them is a sensational moment. This is a film that's made of sensational things. Uh, I think Sean French in his essay on uh, Terminator for the BFI series said, every film should have a couple of moments you talk about in the playground the next day, and Terminator is made entirely of moments you'll talk about in the playground the next day. Like, he cuts his eye with a scalpel. Yeah. It's full of ugh, gross moments. It's full of campfire tales. You won't believe what this guy does next. He comes out of the fire. He's on fire. And, and also, it go, and this is, I think, why it's a comfort watch, because when it's on, you think, Oh, and then there's that good bit. Yes. Oh, and then there's that good bit. You know, and you're just, okay, well, I'll go to bed. I'll go to bed <laughs> after the truck blows up. Or that amazing bit at the end where he's all robot and he looks at the camera. Yeah. He looks straight at you. And I'm just like, But for a low-budget film to be made of sensational moments, it means you're very, very clever because you're using your budget. I think it was about $5 million it cost to make this, and every penny of it's on the screen. He's milked everything out of every single cent of it. But it's made of these sensational moments. Normally, for a sensation film... It's either very, very high budget because you need to have the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, a big moment. You go, wow, I've never seen this before. Or you're doing just gore and schlock. And usually you're using tricks that have been used before, but it's you're cutting someone's ear off or something. You're doing something. It's a conversation point. What's great about Terminator is it's full of special effects you've never seen before and done for almost nothing. Yeah. They're inventing these things. Just something as simple as the cables moving in the wrist, that really simple build. It's all Stan Winston did all the puppet builds in this, who did all the dinosaurs for Jurassic Park. The other person who needs credit for special effects, who is just incredible, is the moment that the Terminator stops being a puppet and is a stop-motion puppet. And it's pure Ray Harryhausen. It's a skeleton. Yeah. It moves like Justin the Argonauts. Do you know who did the stop-motion puppet for Terminator. Go on in. I found this out last night and I asked Will McLean, who is a huge special effects and sci-fi nerd, said, did you know? He said, no. Stop-motion Terminator was made by Pete Kleinow. And I thought, Pete Kleinow, that's a name I know. So I looked him up. Sneaky Pete Kleinow is the pedal steel guitar player from the Flying Burrito Brothers. Who played on Joni Mitchell's Blue, Harry Nilsson's Pussycats, John Lennon's Mind Games. He is the Session 70s pedal steel player for Neil Young, and he was also a stop-motion puppeteer. Oh, my God. 
God. Sneaky Pete did that Terminator <laughs> in his downtime. Oh, it gets That's who James That's Cameron's asking for favours. This is made by mates. It's just, yes. it's a student film. He's pulling in friends. I don't know how they know each other. I don't. I know no more about why those two things go together. But yeah, the flying burrito. Canadians pedestal. are all Canadians. Yeah, they're all just. Ma- yeah, exactly. Everyone from Canada helped out. But it's got that feeling of going. You didn't get. You did get the best guy in the business. He's a really good animator. But you got someone you knew. It's it's got that feeling of a student film. Yeah. But also, I, but then it has my favourite. Little prop of all time, and it's the photograph they get saved from the fire. That's just so brilliant. It's so brilliant. And do you know, I know there's a storm coming, shows up a lot, but I love it here. I know it shows up in a lot of films, it's a, it's a very tropey line, but I don't think I've ever seen it done better. Aya, viene una tormenta! What did he just say? He said there's a storm coming in. I know. It's the last line in the film. Yeah, you're building towards that line. And also, That's the line, yeah. Also, what a great thing. It's a film about a time loop. So it goes round, and what's the last thing she says? There's a storm coming. And you went, but we just watched the storm. Yeah. But it's still no, coming. No, no, it's still coming. <laughs> because there is not, a, you can't change fate. That's not how time works or, or, or things work. It's not how it works. We are all living in a fish tank. We just happen to be at a certain point of it. But whatever's coming, it's coming. And... That's they keep saying that they can change it, but deep down, like all humans, they know that they can't, and that is why it's love. We did it, Kyle. We got it. It deals with the time loop and the time travel thing in a way that is absolutely joyous as well, because it does a thing. I noticed this. There's a bunch of dialogue that sets up the time travel thing. There's a bunch of setups. You go, oh, I'm accepting. I buy this. I buy this. I buy this. Every time you're thinking, how does that work? It drops in a line that says. On the way home, you won't ask this because you remember they answered that. And it gets to a point like all time travel films do where it stops making sense because the story they're telling isn't really about time travel. It's about fate and romance and expectation and seeing the future and destiny and things. And it gets to a point where someone eventually says, surely that doesn't make any sense. At which point another character goes, we've got to run away. Something's exploding. And the audience at that point go, yeah, I'm really sorry I asked. And it's got loads of those moments where something explodes at the moment they're explaining something. And instead of going, hang on, you didn't answer that question, you go, oh, thank God, because I wanted to stop thinking about that. Yes, I think that's It really understands the audience's need to have some answers, but not any answers that spoil the story, because you're following and enjoying the story. And any answer that says, well, hang on, how can he come from the future and be my own own grandpa? That loop is impossible. But then you go... The moment you're about to ask that or stand up and go, I want my money back, an amazing truck chase happens. I think I, I, I think it's probably got something to do with the fact that he's been married like about 11 times, but his inability to be bored, James Cameron, <laughs> his unbelievable restlessness, yes. even in the quietest of his films to stop, you know, blowing stuff up and, and sinking <laughs> things. It's a huge gift to him as a filmmaker. I believe without having any first-hand experience, that it possibly makes him quite difficult to either work for or live with. <laughs> yes. Actually, I've often wondered, because you know he goes down under the sea all the time. Yeah. That's his, like, his hobby is to go down to the depths of the sea. And of course, so you sit in a bathosphere for like four hours coming up to decompress. And I just think, gosh, I wonder if he just like sits there totally chilled and yeah, then yeah. the rest of the time he's running it's about. It's his downtime. Like a, yeah, yeah. yeah, literally his downtime. 
But that, that restless, almost childlike enthusiasm. Oh, totally. And I think he's one of those filmmakers, and there's a list of these, as long as you're armed, you wanted Terry Gilliam, anyone, you go, they get less interesting the more people give them money. I love the early films when this restless imagination is banging against a, a brick wall and like a it's, squash like, it's, it's not just something that happens to filmmakers. Look how uh, writers' books get baggier and longer yeah. as they get older because nobody dares to say no to them if they had a success and therefore they can be edited. But also... Money people get younger, editors get younger, people get, you know, more esteemed in their mm. reputations as they get older, as a kind of quality yeah. of the industry. So I, I recognise it happening. I'm dreading the Avatar sequels. I'm deeply hoping I'm going to be wrong. But it's the trajectory of creative life because, you know, there's no creative fate. But what we make, yeah. well, the, the But the exciting thing about this is he's, he's not being stifled. The only person saying no to him at this point is the budget. Well, you've had all these millions of impossible ideas and no money. So you're going to cast these massive people and you're going to turn them into robots and everything's going to explode. And it's, it's going to satisfy his restless and relentless energy. And the only thing that's stopping him is money. And what you're watching is him hit that and go, don't care, and still make the film. With one great leap, they're free. And suddenly you went, oh, you pulled it off. And I find it really thrilling watching someone pull off yeah. bravura filmmaking. And you go, oh, as a writer or a maker of things, I find it exciting watching people get away with it. It's like watching a heist. He's planned a a, a sensational cultural robbery and you're watching him go, it's like Mission Impossible. He's broken in, he's got past the lasers. This is impossible to make this film and watching him make it is exciting. And that's probably what's less exciting for you about T2 because T2 is possible to make because he's been given loads of money. Yeah, I think you and I know how hard it is to get anything made, to make anything. Uh, To make anything halfway good is a triumph. To make something good with a lot of money is possible. Uh, to make something perfect with no money is astonishing. Yeah. You know, and I think that fresh joy, I'm a bit the same with The Matrix. Yeah. I can't, I remember going to see that Matrix with eight academics because I was dating a professor at the time. <laughs> uh, eight academics, every single one of them hated it to the very core <gasps> of their being. And I came out going, that was the best thing ever. <laughs> and they were all standing around going, oh, Jesus Christ, public culture. And, but that, again, I, I felt they did it with that. It's like, yeah. here's every idea we've ever had and we're going to punch you repeatedly in the face. And that adds to the, so there's no romance that works in the Matrix, which is why it falls down so badly yeah. at the end. But the, um, that sheer joyous, guess what? We did this. It's an evil Knievel leap, isn't it? And when they they nail the landing at the end of it, you go, and I think maybe when you're watching things back and it's, I've noticed maybe things will change as more people bring more things on. People are very rarely choosing sequels. People are very rarely choosing the big bloated one. People are very often choosing the first film by a director or the first run of franchise. And they're going, what was great about it was you could see the limitations. You could see what they were struggling against. And the fact they got away with it you cheer and then the next time you watch it you're not just watching for the story and the plot and the romance you're also watching for the story of the director yeah, how do they the do hope. that maybe that's what it gives yes. you I mean, you need the comfort you're like good things can happen people yeah. can make good things there's always a chance you can fail and then make something brilliant the, the, what you're watching is a story of not only the characters not knowing what's coming next but the yeah. filmmakers not knowing what's coming next they don't know their future they don't know that we're heading towards Terminator 2, Arnie becoming the governor of California, yeah. this becoming this cultural behemoth. You're watching them find out for the first time that they're going to give birth to the leader of the resistance and change That's the world. That's right. It's exciting. It's like, oh, can you imagine the first time they screamed it? And the, the funny thing was, it didn't, it didn't really get real to me until the next morning in dailies. And I saw that close up and I went, this is working great. Yeah. That nobody has ever seen this before. Yeah. You can feel that excitement. The next day he's on set, 
He's probably performing better because he knows this bit of mime is really working. There's a feeling when you watch a first film where someone's trying something new and someone might be a new director or it's a new idea or they haven't got enough money and they're just trying to pull it off. The same feeling you get, oddly, you know when you you'll go and see Amdram and you'll really push it up the hill. You go, yes. I want them to win. And you laugh really loudly. A school play. Yeah, and yeah, you'll go, yeah. oh. And best you come man away. speech. Yeah, you're really, they're, a best man speech is the perfect example. Someone who isn't a stand-up, attempting stand-up, a really hard skill. And everything they do right, get the microphone near their mouth so you can hear them. <laughs> yes. You cheer inside and go, come on. Yeah. And when they do it, the whole room's behind you. There's a real feeling with these films, these comforting early films by people, that you go back and you're watching them for that. Yeah. As much as the story, I as much as the romance. So. There is a romance to the idea of creating something out of nothing. And you must have been so happy when everybody loved it so much. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And you can see the edges of what's possible. So when it means that a film like this which is now 1984, it's a long time ago, and the effects now look dated, but you don't care because you look at it and you don't go, I'm not fooled into thinking that's really a robot. I can see what it is. That's stop motion. That's a puppet. That's Arnie with stuff on his face. I can see it. I don't care because mm. what I'm watching is that you know I can see that. You know that's a lolling Mark Wing Davy electric head. doesn't quite convince, but I'm going to go with you and, and realise how excited you were when you thought you pulled it off. And tell you what, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to enjoy how much you're all enjoying doing this. And I think it stops these films dating. You did it despite the yes. shortcomings. They don't spoil it. Run! Come on, motherfucker. They have a terrible tendency. I think ITV at one point owned it and had a, they kept putting on at 10.35. And I remember that because I go to bed at 10, 15. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the days where it was like, oh, God, am I going to tape it? No, I'm not going to tape it. I've seen it a million times. Just watch a little bit and, you know, that's it. You're in again. It's a thing to watch. It is a thing to watch live. This is a, you'll drop in and go, yeah, it is a succession of great scenes that I'm happy to see. And I won't go to bed till it's finished. No, you won't go to bed till it's finished. Actually, I did do a terrible. It was last Christmas, the Christmas before, over the Christmases, we always watch a series of films, whether yeah. it's Harry Potter or James Bond, whatever it is. And one Christmas was the Terminator Christmas. And I had, and you know what Aww. kids are like, right? You can warn them, you know, first one you're going to love, second one you're going to love. And after that, it is just not very good, you know? Yeah. But they don't believe you. No. They're like, oh, what, what? These this kids are raised my... on the prequels from Star Wars. They, they were supposed <laughs> to know, take them seriously. As far as they're concerned, all seven Harry Potter films were flawless in every conceivable <laughs> way. So, you know, they, they, they just... So I was, I was telling them, this is not going to work out. Uh, you know, but, you know, we'll start. And they watch T1, brilliant. Watch T2, oh, for kids, T2. Yeah. I mean, it's a kid's film, T2. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's a kid in it. Well, it's about a kid, yeah. It's got short round on it. It's brilliant. <sighs> We don't shoot anyone now, do we, Arnie? No, we go, no, 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 no. How could, how could you? The, the shock in the first film when he, you know, does the I'll be back with the car thing. You don't think he's going to kill every policeman in the building? No, no. You don't think he's going to kill the policeman you've seen chatting? No, no. About everything else and the guy with the cigarette out and the coffee? You think he's going to kill a guy and do his best? You don't think he's going to kill every last bugger in the building? You know, it's so brilliant. Whereas in the second one, it's oh, we don't kill anyone now. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, so they, they they liked the first one. They adored the second one and the spooky, spooky Terminator of the second yeah, one. Yeah. It's far more frightening than Arnie, in fact. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and then we got to three, and then we trudged on through 
four. And we just, I, the last one, uh, you know. No, no, what am I talking about? It was shit. They're all shit, apart from the first. The pace of them doesn't feel sluggish to a modern audience because it invented that kind of rush tap pace. I dread to think how fast it must have looked at the time. But the energy of that cutting, when he releases the, the rubber band of tension for an action scene, it's frames of action. It's not even seconds of action. And I think that can still shock a kid. There's a famous uh, Roger Ebert review of Aliens, which is worth checking out yeah. if you haven't seen it, uh, where he genuinely writes about Aliens as a film being too thrilling for contemporary audiences. It's very like wow. the guy saying that trains move too fast for humans <laughs> to live. Yeah. He's literally like, I don't think audiences should be subjected to this level of anxiety. That's, That's the review. He genuinely thought this is a new year of filmmaking, which it was, yeah. um, and that it would be too much to bear, rather than, of course, these days, the absolute basic standard of a world that's nine times faster than the world Roger Ebert was living in. Yeah, it, it, it does feel like you're going to ask for a man with a red flag to walk in front of this film. because He it's genuinely gonna, thought gonna it people. was unsustainable. Terminator feels 100% because you feel bludgeoned by it that I'm not ready for this. The first thing we see, you go, this is more thrilling, more uh, exciting, more fast, violent, yes. It's, it's a punch in the face. Everything about it is exaggerated. And Cameron said that when he originally wrote it, and the story would make more sense, if the Terminator looked like an ordinary person. The 600 series had rubber skin. We spotted them easy. But these are new. They look human. Sweat, bad breath, everything. Very hard to spot. I had to wait till he moved on you before I could zero him. And the idea was he was supposed to be able to blend into a crowd and be a perfect assassin. So they were going to cast it. Maybe it would be a Michael Bean type of guy. Mm. Or Lance Henriksen could have been the Terminator. That was the casting. As soon as Arnie was on board, Cameron went, right, that changes the whole thing. We are now in a comic book world. It changes everything by that casting. But the moment you put Arnie in it, you go, well, it's 10 times more thrilling. He can't hide. He just comes through. I don't think I'd ever seen anything where someone was up against someone who was a comic book truck. He doesn't yeah. outwit people. He just drives through them. But Robert Patrick is very face in the crowdy. Yeah. And he actually, I although I find Arnie scary in an impenetrable way, as yeah. like you say, he's like a, a wall on a motorway. Um, <laughs> but whereas I, I find Robert Patrick absolutely the stuff of nightmares because he's the completely banal policeman who is going to fuck you up. <laughs> Which I suppose to steady percentage of americans is what all policemen are like. <laughs> yes, exactly. a glimpse another glimpse of the future mm. but it's i think that maybe in terminator 2 is is james cameron doing his original idea for terminator 1 which is uh, that this guy could be your best friend whereas the reason i think this feels so thrilling and so new and why why it will be something that someone like roger ebert would go are we ready for this <laughs> is i don't think anyone had done something where one of your actors was like an oncoming train it's a really simple word. It's such a novelty. And what's strange is to watch Terminator then become a part of the culture, that it's really exciting to watch it again and go, imagine you'd never seen this before. Because yeah. this is comfort viewing. We've all seen it lots. Watch it and go, imagine you didn't know this was coming. It's a complete head fuck. I film. think of things I, I watch over and over again, and I, I think I am constantly trying to recreate that <laughs> feeling of what's What's going to happen now? Oh, my goodness. You know, that. And one of the, the great joys I've had with the children is showing them, you know, the sixth sense or yeah. um, the 
usual suspects mm. and then just without making a big deal of it, yeah. very quietly watching their yeah. But I was, you know, and of course enjoying it. But that that remembering. Well, this is back to why I hate spoilers so much. But remembering that overwhelming joy of surprise and unwrapping delight. a present. That's exactly what. Don't it is. feel your presence yeah, before. So even when yeah, exactly the worst line Doctor Who ever wrote was about somebody. Uh, they had a line where he says, "Well, everyone opens their presents before Christmas," what? and the no. BBC got like thousands of complaint letters because Doctor never normally tells children no. to do bad stuff ever. But I love, I, lo- I just love remembering that kind of sense of, oh, he's going to be the father of her baby. You know, I'm just looking yeah. for that wonderful, oh, you know, all over again. Tape seven, November 10. Where was I? What's most difficult for me is trying to decide what to tell you and what not to. Because it reveals itself and it reveals itself, as you pointed out, to be a story you're completely not expecting. Yeah. This is one of those presents. You know when you do that novelty thing of my mum buying my dad an umbrella and wrapping it up to look like a cat? It's that thing. <laughs> so the, the handle was the tail. To go, oh. what's under the tree? We've wrapped you up a cat. Oh. That's what Terminator is. It's a present that you put in a bigger box or a different shape box so you can't tell. You can't guess it's a record because yes, it's in a massive box. Right. It looks like it's one thing and it's another. And This is something us romance writers have to do all the time because we're constantly sidelined and belittled as not real writers. <laughs> So I, I, I tell you what, the boys are really good at it. Sebastian Fox is always writing, you know, terribly manly army novels that are actually big slushy romances. <laughs> but it's all right. They've got guns and more. It's yeah. ridiculous the length that we have to do. And Tolstoy's got to throw folk under a train, you know. <laughs> so sneak in to the fact that to the cultural commentators of the world, many of whom traditionally have been men. Highlander's a great example. Yeah, yeah. Highlander's a big love story, but it's got a sword, so it's all right. <laughs> and, uh, it's just the way that people who love kind of romantic stories, which is not just women, which is in fact everyone, but the way we have to get them undercover is with a lot of shit being blown up. And I think Terminator is one of the finest examples of us trying to tell stories about love that lasts forever, which is, as I'm always saying as part of my job, (laughs) the single most important choice you will ever make is who you spend the rest of your life with. And if you have children, who you have children with. You know, everything else is pretty much more or less out of your control. The most important thing in your life, the most biggest thing you will probably do is choose who you're going to spend it with. Are you sure you have the right person? I'm sure... And that's fundamentally what loads of stories are about. And sometimes to make them palatable to an audience that desperately wants to hear that everything's going to be all right. You're going to make a choice and live or die. It's going to be the right choice. Of course it is here. We need a real fuck off robot to do it. The journey you're watching with her as well is a journey from her not knowing she can do anything, thinking she's useless. He says to her, you're important and you're important to me and you're important to the world. You're significant. And obviously that's a a romantic message to say within my world, you are the most important person. You don't know. You don't know that yet. This is I've picked you. I've come across time to find you. The world he's challenging her to enter. She's not up to. She's a waitress. And she ends up saying things like, look at me shaking. Some legend, you must be really disappointed. And she's going, oh, I'm not up to the expectations you've got of me. And yet he stays with her. And you go, oh, she's going to, over the journey of this film, fill the boots that he has said she will be able to fill. But also when he says to her, Sarah, I came across time for you. I love you and I always have. That doesn't mean 
if you get good at doing a field dressing, that just means I love you and I always yeah. have. And that's all that's important, you know? And in fact, you know, they might have a baby, they might not have a baby, they might save the world, but it doesn't matter because he came anyway because she is enough. They do cool stuff. She is going to learn how to be a warrior. We see that. But actually, you know, I think it, he loves her anyway and he always she has. Was he had no idea if she She was could enough make at him. the beginning. Yes. She was always enough. And that is the story, the really deep fundamental story in a romance, which is you, whoever you are, are going to be enough. So in a story like this, where you're watching someone change, there's a character arc and the character arc, the key character arc in this, Arnie's not got a character arc really. And, and, and also because they're time travelers as well, their character arcs are kind of already spent by the time they, they arrive. They've already got their future. Um, the only character arc in here is, is, is Sarah Connor's character arc. And she's, she's, got, she's going on a journey. You're following her on a journey. It looks like what she's doing is following a journey from being a waitress who's scared to being a tough bitch in a car with a dog who knows the future's really cool and she's really important. But the actual story, which you're saying is there, is that a man arrives in the future who already knows she's completely enough no matter what. It's not a military training thing where you toughen up and at the end, the great thing was she says, On your feet, soldier! That strength was always in there, partly because she was always tough enough to do this but didn't know, and also because it's a time loop film. So when he arrives, he knows who she's going to become. The thing about a time loop is it enables you to do a romance where one character has faith in another character because they know what's going to happen. But actually, the true romance is taking a risk on someone who you don't know whether they're going to turn out to be a tough amazing soldier but to still go i believe in you i have faith in you you are enough i love you anyway and even though of course he knows already in the future that she is dead yeah which is the key to now we're talking about the 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 joy of all time loop romance oh my god have you seen arrival i was about to say you can't even mention the name of that film i just start to cry my my wife met me in the street on the way out of arrival she said are you all right has something terrible happened i said i've just been crying for two hours i started crying it was a charity effort at the beginning i started (laughs) crying and i didn't stop at all i love that and that's a film about romance potential doing it anyway knowing what the loops are yes and Another film that you mustn't spoil for anyone by, by, by saying what's going to happen because yeah. the journey you'll go on there is so emotional and so brilliant. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just a, the, the ultimate space weepy. It's yes. great. But it's about that thing of you're watching someone have a, a character, have a, an arc and a journey and change. And Sarah Connor definitely does have an arc and a journey and change. But the guy who arrives, thanks to time travel, is representing the faith that any partner has in another partner from the moment they meet. I have faith that we're going to be good together. You're going to be okay. That is absolutely the balance of a romance, which is when I'm writing, uh, and I write straight romance, that the uh, woman will uh, accept and accentuate her own worth, whether or not the chap is there, but the chap there would like her either way. That's that's the fundamental crux of what you're trying to write if you're writing love stories and wish fulfillment stories. You're fine. Together we'll be even better. You are enough yes. and we are amazing. Yes. What a lovely uh, we're story. We're both going to be dead. <laughs> <laughs> because of robots. Dead, 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 dead. Here's some skulls. They're quite cheap, but they're scary anyway. It's amazing to think that a film that everyone knows works and is well known as a great 
clockwork example of action filmmaking. If you rip off all the flesh of this film, which is just action movie, underneath it, the skeleton is this romantic film. Underneath it, the hardware that's beating underneath it, the mechanism, the cables that are pulling are the most unexpected ones you could think of because it only works because it's got a love story in the middle of it. Yes. That's my thesis, Joel. <laughs> well, I accept your thesis, and it's brilliant. Uh, thank you for bringing Terminator. <laughs> thank you. Fuck you, asshole. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.